We've been in Ephesians off and on for some time, actually. And uh, you may recall that uh, earlier in the year I, I had some health issues, and so we had some gaps in being in Ephesians. And uh, then we picked it up again, and Shelley was with me the last two Sundays. And um, I'm really grateful for that. Although a little bit of fallout, you know, it's like, where's Shelley? We want Shelley. <laughs> I understand that. Um, but, but now we're moving in to November and first fruits. And so following first fruits, we'll be looking forward to the birth of Christ, celebrating his birth and Christmas. And so we'll pick up Ephesians after the first of the year. And we have, we have to finish the household. And I'm already planning on Shelley joining me, of course. And, uh, and uh, maybe we'll have some other wonderful uh, surprises as we work through some of the practical things involved in, the, in finalizing Ephesians. But as we look to first fruits, uh, I just want to remind you why we dedicate the Sundays in November leading up to Thanksgiving, and we call it first fruits uh, because we are interested in focusing on inspiring Christ-likeness, in particular, uh, the devotion of our lives, the discipleship of our lives that goes into making that, that purpose statement, that vision statement meaningful, the kinds of things uh, that are important priorities in our lives. Often we categorize those in terms of time, talent, and treasure. You know, how we're using the time that we are given, how we're using our life and our talents, our God-given abilities, are we using them to honor Christ and our treasure, the things that God graces our lives with, are we in turn grateful and expressing that gratitude in the same generosity which God has shown us. So this morning, I'm going to focus on a little bit on time. It's all about time, actually. You may not recognize it at first, but I hope to bring you around. Um, one thing I think we all appreciate is that Jesus called people to follow him. And in following him, we're following his purpose, not our purpose, <laughs> his purpose. That's the whole notion of following him. His purpose becomes our purpose. One of his disciples, the Apostle John, described the whole enterprise. And I'd like you to turn in the New Testament to a very familiar passage, to John chapter 3, Verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, 
but have eternal life. His Son embodies, we call it incarnation, but His entire life, His entire mission embodies, expresses the love of the Father. That love of the Father becomes the centerpiece of Jesus' ministry. He defined his mission in terms of the Father's love. Let's look at Mark chapter 12, verses 28 through 31. And one of the scribes, and a scribe would be a lawyer of the law, someone trained and schooled in uh, the full understanding of God's Word, like a seminary graduate, one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another and seeing that he, that is Jesus, answered them well, asked Jesus, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. But then Jesus took the scribe in a direction he may not have seen coming. The second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other command greater than these. And the scribe said to him, You are right, teacher. You shall love your neighbor As yourself, there is no other command greater than these. And the scribe said to him, You are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one, and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all understanding and with all strength, to love and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. To his disciples, to you and me, Jesus raised the bar. And we see that when he was on the eve of his death. And together with his disciples, he taught them. Turn to John chapter 13. Verse 34 and 5. A new commandment I give to you, 
that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. And a little later, Jesus said in John chapter 15, verse 13, Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. I would remind you that none of this, everything that we have in our New Testament, everything that we've just read, as we bring to this our knowledge, our different and varied knowledge of the life of Christ, of the Gospels, of the Epistles, of the New Testament, of the Bible, of God's enterprise in Jesus Christ, of the history, His story, from Genesis to Revelation, none of this would matter if it were not for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And as we've seen in Paul's letter to the Ephesians, the resurrection means more than heaven for me when I die. The resurrection means more. It means a new humanity, a new people. a new humanity empowered by the Holy Spirit. There would be no Holy Spirit poured out on the church, the distinctive, the characteristic of the church. This is the teaching of the New Testament. This is the teaching of Peter at Pentecost with the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. This is the fulfillment of God's purpose. This is the power of the Messiah and His people. The promise of the Father realized in Jesus' resurrection and exaltation and its outpouring of the Spirit on His people, His church. This is a new humanity predicated upon the resurrection. I cannot emphasize this enough. I don't think we get it. This is a new race, a spirit-filled race. In the midst of the old humanity, The first humanity after Adam, the last humanity after the last man, Jesus Christ. This is what Paul emphasizes and teaches, especially in Romans 5 and 1 Corinthians 15. 
And 1 Corinthians 15 is especially profound because it's talking about the resurrection life. Eternal life does not begin at death. Unless you think of the reality of your baptism, which is evidence of your death in Jesus Christ and your resurrection to newness of life. But the constituency of the Holy Spirit in your life is your destiny to be a new humanity fashioned after the existence of the resurrected Christ. And that is uninterrupted in Him. You, me, the church, we are the messianic people. We are the people of the end time. We are the people of the fulfillment of Scripture in Jesus Christ. The evidence of God's enterprise in Jesus Christ is you and me, the body of Christ the body of evidence, if you will. This is the evidence that people really want. Yes, we have evidence that appeals to the intellect, but there is a powerful and greater evidence that is ours in Christ, and it is the power of the Holy Spirit in your lives, and the evidence of that Spirit is His love, the heart of His enterprise, the heart of the incarnation of Christ, born out in his sacrificial death, ratified in his resurrection. We are the manifestation of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That was the evidence of what Paul was saying in 1 Corinthians. Your experience of the Holy Spirit is your experience of the risen Christ. So when I ask the rhetorical question, where's the evidence? Look around. You are the DNA of the resurrection of Jesus. I was reading this this week. I'm kind of glad. I couldn't keep up with all the CSI shows, you know, crime scene investigation. It started... Oh, I don't remember where it started, uh, but they had them all over the place, you know. They had, I think, three shows running concurrently at one point. Uh, Florida, New York, L.A. Look at it. I, I picked a good illustration, no doubt. <laughs> Crime scene investigation is based on a principle. It really hit me this week when it was brought to my attention that this principle goes back to Dr. Edmund Lockhart. Dr. Edmund Lockhart was known as the Sherlock Holmes of France. I think he died in the 60s. So he was in operation before a lot of us were born. And 
his principle was basically this, every contact leaves a trace. In other words, a perpetrator of a crime will bring something into the crime scene and leave with something from it. And that both can be used as forensic evidence. One forensic, one forensic expert Paul J. Kirk put it this way, and I quote, whenever he steps, wherever he steps, could I suppose be a she too, right? Uh, Wherever he steps, whatever he touches, whatever he leaves, even unconsciously, will serve as a silent witness against him. Not only his fingerprints or his footprints, but his hair, the fibers from his clothes, the glass he breaks, the paint he scratches, the blood He deposits or collects. This is evidence that does not forget. Well, John Sutherland, who kind of put me on to this, he's a London uh, policeman of over 25 years, and he applied Lockard's principle, his exchange principle, to all human relationships. And this is what he wrote. Every time two people come into contact with one another, An exchange takes place, whether between lifelong friends or passing strangers. We encourage, we ignore, we hold out a hand, or we withdraw it. We walk towards, or we walk away. We bless, or we curse. And every single contact leaves a trace. The way we treat and regard one another matters. It really matters. Every contact leaves a trace. What traces of your exchange tell of God's love, the work of God's love, the power of God's love? to change your mind, change your heart, change your soul. Jesus, of course, was not thinking of forensics as we know it today, but he was thinking of the endless exchanges that we have with other people as evidence of God's kingdom love. With Lockard's exchange principle in mind, we can ask ourselves, what traces of this divine love and new humanity do I leave behind? What evidence, what DNA of the resurrection and Christ's love empowered by the Holy Spirit, the endowment of new life? There's a saying we are probably familiar with, Maybe you can enhance or advance that for me. To the world, you're, not, you're just one person. But to one, you may be the world. I hope you're kind of adding up some of these thoughts. You might even think back of how it was that you were touched by the love of God. Was it authenticated by someone's love of you, care for you, interest in you, that you were singled out, magnified as it were, 
in importance. And really, when you came to Christ and found out that magnification, if you will, is just the dignity of who you are in Jesus Christ, and that the believers in Jesus Christ who live out that new life that is ours, they see that dignity in new life, that potential. Because that's at the very heart of the whole enterprise of Jesus Christ. For God so loved the world. We can never forget this because it's at the root of our own being. This week, you know, I, I'm very fond of Starbucks. I, don't, I hope you can make that out. It says, uh, the holidays are here and good is in the air. Hold the door for someone. Connect over coffee. Say hi to a stranger. Give perfect gifts to the ones you love. And once good starts, it keeps going and growing from one person to the next. Simple acts of kindness that touch the lives of many because God is contagious. Good is contagious. And that was a Freudian slip. That was a Holy Spirit slip. Because good is contagious and giving is too. I think we can do better than that. Is that the bar? Is that the, is that the gold standard? Is that what, you know, moves people today? If it is, what should the impact of Christ be making on our lives when that standard of good, that standard of love, that standard of sacrificial love, is at play in our hearts and in our lives. This isn't something we squander for ourselves, keep to ourselves. If it is, then it's not the love that we think it is. I want us to... uh, Look at these, think about these three verses. Having some technical problems here. Maybe you can bring up the next lines for me. Here's good. This is the, this is the basic standard. It's not the Starbucks standard. It is love your neighbor as yourself. This is the basic standard of the golden rule. And it appeals to our God-created nature, our conscience, that we should, we who know what, what we want for ourselves, we know how we want to be treated. Jesus says that's the standard that we should use in treating 
one another. And so it's Jesus here in this passage of Mark 12 that ties these commands together, that of loving others from Leviticus 19.18 to the love of God. Deuteronomy 6.5, elevating love of others to loving our Heavenly Father, an expression of that love. And in that sense, to one person, you really may be the world. But it's love based on an earthly standard of fair treatment. We could up the game if we just love this way. Because in these two commandments, the law and prophets are fulfilled. Jesus takes love higher, conditioning love not on the standard of conscience of how I want to be treated, but how I want or how I want to be loved, but he ups the game and bases it on his love. That's the love that he gives to his disciples. This is the better love, John 13, 34 and 35. Love one another as I have loved you. This is the love that defines disciples' love. This uh, last week, a friend of mine uh, writes a blog, Faith Theology, and uh, he did something unusual. He talked a little bit about his personal life because uh, the very earlier this this last week, his dog Cola died. let me show you a picture of Cola. Ben's children grew up with Cola. They're, you could say that they've never known life without Cola. His eldest child named the puppy after his teddy bear, which had fallen apart from so many hugs. And Ben wrote, and I just want to excerpt a little of what he wrote, we soon learned that a dog is even better than a teddy bear because a dog is not a thing. He's not a person either. I understand that, but he dwells somewhere in the borderlands of personhood. Anyone who doubts that animals have souls has never reckoned with a Labrador. Now, I want you to listen very carefully to this next sentence. Whether the dog brings his soul with him into the world or acquires it through constant communion with the human soul remains a debated point. At any rate, the dog is more susceptible to humanization than any other animal. I resonated with that because I've seen dogs dehumanized by exposure to humans. And I've seen dogs humanized by their exposure to humans. Ben goes on, he says, he feels joy and doubt and affection and cunning and anticipation and contentment and shame. What human 
ever felt more. The creature of whom I speak used to sneak under the covers of my son's bed and sleep there on the forbidden mattress, a huge Labrador-sized lump under the covers beside a sleeping boy, hardly daring to breathe in case I found him there and banished him to the unwelcoming floor. Once when I had taken Cola to the beach, he saw me body surfing and was seized by a sudden terror for my life. He snatched the leash up in his mouth, I had left it lying on the sand, and plunged into the waves and swam out to me, whimpering horribly until I consented to take the leash in my hand whereupon he turned and swam to shore, pulling me behind him. I thanked him for rescuing me. It was a considerate gesture, and I informed him that I would now continue swimming. <laughs> but he, he who loved beaches and knew them so well, was very distrustful of the waves that day and sulked mightily when I tried to get back in the water. So I trusted his instincts and lay down on the sand instead, and he laid his wet head upon me in satisfaction. And I never drowned that day. Maybe he was right. <laughs> Who knows how much a dog knows? I debated whether I should share this, but you know, I had never thought about humanizing a dog before reading Ben's blog. And I just kept pondering it and thinking about what he had written. Had you ever thought of humanizing a dog? Had you ever thought of forming a soul? Have you ever thought that our love is a distinctive and a divine form of humanizing other people? Jesus' love in us via the Holy Spirit when we give him the freedom to operate as Christ would operate in our lives if he had his own way? And what influence that could have. Could you ever imagine thinking about it and I hadn't, in terms of humanizing. But not just humanizing, not like just a Starbucks ad, self-serving, calling us to the lowest possible standard ever, humanizing in terms of the new humanity that is ours in Christ. Jesus, you see here with his disciples, is in effect saying, you're different. You know my love in a way that you'll never forget. And it's my love that sets the bar, the standard for your love. In fact, your love for one another 
will communicate, it will be the evidence to the world that you are my disciples. And this all prior to his death and resurrection. But something they fully realized when what God's grand design was, something they couldn't have fathomed and didn't, they appreciated in the risen Christ. You see, the Spirit is generating the soul of Jesus Christ in us, a new humanity, a risen humanity in our lives. Discipleship is a humanization. Really, think about it. Just the biblical foundation of our dignity, our worth, our purpose, our calling. But now, up the ante in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Talk about a new humanity. That's why in John 15, 13, greater love has no one than this. And that is really the love that is best. Greater love has no one than this, that a person lay down his life for his friends. There's something more precious than life. That's, what, that's the implication. But nothing in this world is ever going to challenge you to lay down your life because to this world there's nothing more precious than your life except my life or your life because self is the most important. But you see, in the resurrection, it's all a different game. It's a different reality. And it's in lieu of this, in light of this, Jesus says there's no greater love. He's going to lay down his life for the disciples. He's going to lay down his life for you and me. He's going to lay down his life for the lowest and the least and the lost. And he who to the world is just a person. in the eyes of Christ, is so much more. Because Jesus says, your worth is based on my worth. And I surrender and sacrifice my worth, my life, for you. This is the horizon of love in Christ the defining quality of God's love. It's not Merriam-Webster's definition of love. It is the definition that we have in Jesus Christ. And this love is demonstrated. He's not calling us to martyrdom, although martyrdom is the horizon. We call it martyrdom. It's that love is so compelling, this love so fulfilling, this life that we've been called to, this new existence that informs our entire outlook on everything around us, everything in front of us, everything behind us, and everything ahead of us. This love 
can never be lost to us. And thus we can demonstrate it, if need be, by surrendering our life for these greater truths that are ours in the new humanity in Christ. The hard work is that we have to show this love not in some great conflagration, some big blast or blow up, but we have to show it in denying ourselves throughout each and every day. We have to deny ourselves to the people we live with, the people we work with, the people we go to school with, the people we play with, and demonstrate this love. Every contact leaves a trace. Lockhart's exchange principle says, in effect, every moment of every day counts if you're living for Jesus Christ. Ben's Labrador reminds us that time has a limit, but in that time you can influence another. Influence not just a Labrador, but influence people for whom Jesus Christ surrendered his life. Divine love has a lot to do with our notions and our use of time. Aside from theories of time and books on time management, when you get right down to it, time is life. Time is your life and my life. And to figure out time, we don't need a telescope, we need a microscope. Under the microscope, time is this moment, the present. That's life. The best use of life is living each moment purposefully. For in purpose, listen to me very carefully, in purpose there is meaning. And in meaning there is worth. The meaning of time and life is found in your purpose. And you'll have no higher purpose than that which becomes yours in Jesus Christ if he is your Lord and Savior. Without purpose, we're just wasting our time, and that's bad news because time flies. The good news is you're the pilot. To pilot your life, you need to make good choices, and to make good choices, you need purpose. You need a flight plan. This is the flight plan of Jesus Christ that becomes the flight plan of his disciples. What is your purpose? Jesus says, if you're my disciple, my purpose is your purpose, and my purpose is love. I like the way one person who, in prayer, said, our loving Father, help us remember that it's not where we breathe, but where we love that we live. Get purposeful about people, every contact. Get intentional about discipling others as the very presence of Christ. And realize that every exchange, every little thing can have merit and value and is a part of God's master plan. You may, need, may not get to talk about Jesus Christ, but you can love as the new humanity. You know, some water 
some weed, some sow. Every moment can be intentional and significant. Making a difference in a person's life is good. Making a difference and making a friend is better. And making a difference and making a friend and making a disciple is best. And you will if you start loving as you have been called to love in Christ. How deeply we love is a reflection of how we view Jesus' sacrificial love. And that is what we celebrate this morning as we look at the at the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. These people are not leaving because they're offended. They're going to help. I don't know. Maybe they are offended, but they're all dressed up, so I'm, I'm figuring it's contagious in some way. When you hold this unleavened bread and uh, this cup this morning, each one cries out, you are loved, in a way that we shouldn't take it for granted. But yet we can. It's, it's our human nature. But God calls us to his higher nature. And as you hold this bread and this cup, this higher nature is in view. And it's what we celebrate, what we're called to, what we're to live for. It is his grace to us. It is his forgiveness. It is his new life, his new covenant, his new purpose. It is life everlasting. It is a life of meaning, of value, of dignity, of the higher humanity that is ours in Jesus Christ.